0: Back in the day in, in the mid 70s and on, on up till probably the mid 80s, there was something in Knoxville called float wards. And that's where there would be a willing buyer and a willing seller on the votes. And they would be an organized effort. And there would be car trunks with pints of whiskey in it. Occasionally, there'd be $2 or $3 that would go with it, etc. Bottom line being, the 12 to 14 float wards in the city of Knoxville could determine how close elections turned out. Welcome to Country Road Detours, podcasting from the front porch of the south. Visit us at countryroaddetours.com Today we have former mayor
1: of Knoxville, Tennessee, Randy Tyree, the son of a tobacco farmer and a local high school football star from the small town of Carthage, Tennessee. After graduating from high school, he took off to Washington, D.C. to work for the FBI. He continued his law enforcement career in Knoxville as a policeman and then later as a police commissioner. With the help of a well-known local grocery legend, he was able to get just enough votes to narrowly defeat incumbent Mayor Kyle Testman. As Mayor Tyree was able to help get the 1982 World's Fair to Knoxville, a dream that most people said would never happen.
0: And now, let's listen in.
1: A lot of folks remember you as the mayor during the 1982 World's Fair. So when you were running for your first term in 1976, who did you run against?
0: Uh, Actually, we had a primary and we had to have a runoff. (laughs) The runoff was... Between an incumbent mayor, Kyle Testerman, may he rest in peace. That election still holds the record for voter turnout. What was the record? There were over fifty thousand people voted in the mayor's race. My margin of victory uh, in the in the runoff was three hundred ninety-three votes. So I earned the title of landslide Randy. <laughs> <laughs> it was a barn burning campaign, and it was a time of change in the community. That was such a close election. You must have been biting your nails waiting for the final results. I had been played as such an underdog Uh for such a long period of time. In the primary, it actually uh, resulted in uh, Mayor Testman won the primary, but he did not get the required 50% plus one vote. So, as I recollect, he carried the primary by some 400-something votes, but when I got into the runoff, uh, that came two weeks later, and there was such uh, adrenaline going on in the community, we wound up uh, with an additional 10,000 voters voting in the runoff. Oh, So wow. that's where the 393-vote margin came out. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, the first year was... Pretty exciting in a lot of ways, because I was not anticipated uh, that I was going to win. All of the normal processes that are in place, there nothing had been set up for transition. At that point, January 1st was when you were sworn in, and uh, at that point, you had to have a budget ready in three months. The prime person for the budget at that time was Rick Delaney. And uh, the community and I owe him a debt of gratitude because Rick agreed to stay on uh, with the new administration and uh, handle the budget, which uh, it would have gotten pretty ugly uh, if he had not been a mainstay in order to get the budget completed in in a timely fashion. So you were born in Carthage, Tennessee, just
1: outside of Nashville. Is is that correct?
0: It's east of Nashville, east of Lebanon. Carthage is a, a very small country town. All right. Uh, but it is also the home of some very prominent people, not present company excluded, perhaps. But it was uh, the home of a gentleman, uh, Cordell Hull, who was Secretary of State when... Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, and there's a long story about that. Yeah. Uh, But it also uh, was the home of the Gore family.
1: Yeah, Gore Uh, Sr. and Jr.
0: Both. Yeah. Correct.
1: Well, did you know it was also the home of George McCorkle?
0: I didn't.
1: I'll tell you who that is. He's (laughs) a founding member of the Marshall Tucker Band. Did you not know that?
0: I did not know
1: that. I did not know that. And then... uh, Benton McMillan, governor of Tennessee, 1899 to 1903.
0: Um, That's a long time ago. A little before my time. Not yeah. much, but a little before my time. <laughs> Your dad probably knew him, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, read that. So what was it like as a young man working on a family tobacco farm during the hot summer days?
0: It was a challenge because the worst job in the world, and that usually fell Uh, to the uh, younger members of the family was suckering tobacco because... uh, Was what? Suckering. What is suckering tobacco? That's pulling the sucker out of the tobacco plant. Mm -hmm. And what makes that so messy is that uh, there's the tobacco juice, green tobacco juice that just gets caked on you. Uh, And the tobacco, when you sucker it, the uh, probably the second time, it is over your head, so you don't get you you wade through these tall tobacco plants, and you're reaching up. There's always these huge green worms that are in the tobacco. What you do is you you pinch their head off, because <laughs> if they if you leave them on there, uh, they will disease the tobacco. Oh. They eat the tobacco, mm-hmm. so you're you're debugging. At the same time that you're uh, getting suckers out, but tobacco was the money crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of it was arduous labor mm-hmm. because you had to you had to do a, uh, do a plant bed mm-hmm. to sow the seed, to pull the plants, then you had to peg them out with a hand peg, and you had to sort of keep them doctored as the plants grew. Then it at certain times, you had to cut the tobacco uh-huh. and put it in the barn. and then you had to strip it, then you had to take it to market. It was about, a uh, from start to finish, it was springtime to wintertime.
1: Oh, that's, that's a long time. I used to work for the Department of Agriculture at the University of Tennessee for the tobacco department. Uh, my job was to take photos of tobacco crops in Tennessee, uh, North Carolina, and Kentucky. One day I was assigned to take photos of a farmer 's damaged crop, and that 's where I saw the devastation that was caused by the tomato or, or the tobacco hornworm that you were referring to
0: well did you uh Did you ever get whooped with a tobacco stick no uh, well that was <laughs> that was a part of the game that that my brother and I played because the the tobacco sticks. Uh, I'm talking about what after you strip them off, uh, all the leaves off of it, mm-hmm. then you, you throw the tobacco. Uh, it becomes fertilizer. So what would happen? My brother and I, we'd always get into it and we'd wind up throwing uh, tobacco sticks at each or the stalks at each other until uh, Dad called time out on us and busted our butt for <laughs> for the activity that we weren't we weren't doing the job. You know, kids today
1: have cable TV and online gaming to entertain themselves. What did your family do for entertainment back then?
0: We didn't have electricity oh. until I was um, eight years old. So we had a battery-powered radio that my dad used very selectively. okay, Occasionally. I would sneak in and listen to the Green Hornet oh. uh, or, or some other. You listen to Lemon Abner? Oh, yes. That okay. was a. Uh, that, but that, no, that was actually more my dad because that was uh, the Grand Ole Opry and the uh, Calkinborn News were the two things that Dad always listened to.
1: You know, the Gore family lived in Carthage at the time you did. Did your dad know Al Gore
0: Sr.? Uh, Yes. Matter of fact, there's a story about that with uh, Al Sr. He was a congressman. He was school superintendent of Smith County, and then he was a congressman, and then he was a senator. And he was very strong. It was a rural area. He had about five counties that he represented as a congressman. I specifically remember... The story my dad told me about the time when their tobacco crop didn't come in real well. It basically failed. And we had to pay rent money with what we sold the tobacco for. Dad needed to get groceries. His story is that he went to a constituent day that Al Gore did in Carthage on the square, told Al Gore what his problem was. He said, we don't have any groceries. And Al Gore Sr. went to Hodge's Grocery, which was in South Carthage, across the river with dad, told Mr. Hodge, said Bethel, that was my dad's name, says Bethel needs some groceries. He said, do you give him what he needs? and If he's not able to cover it, I'll pay for it. So there was that constituent service that was right down to the nitty-gritty of putting food on the table. And Dad was really proud about it because later on he was able to pay for that line of credit, so to speak, by selling some hogs. So Senator Gore didn't have to pay for it. But he gave him the credit in order to survive until he could uh, get those hogs sold.
1: My dad shared stories about his grandfather and grandmother back in Virginia. Is there a story that you remember that your father told you?
0: I was the fifth child born. Mm -hmm. I had two brothers, two sisters, all uh, older. The unique thing, uh, and this was a story that dad uh, really enjoyed telling was I was born on January 20th and the Cumberland River froze over because it was uh, way beyond below beyond, uh, zero. And the doctor that was to deliver me, they anticipated, I weighed 11 and a half pounds, so they anticipated a pretty heavy uh, delivery process. There was a, a ice and snowstorm. According to Dad, he had to take his team of mules and go down to the bottom of the hill because Dr. Sloan, who was coming to deliver me at the home place, and he had a T-model Ford. This was 1940. He got stuck in the snow. Dad took his team of mules, went down and hooked up to the car pulled him up so he could deliver me. The odd thing about it, to this day, this stays in the Tyree family as a story. Dr. Sloan really screwed up the birth certificate. He got my name wrong, Uh as Ronald Lewis, and spelled it wrong. He had my dad as a housewife and my mother as a farmer. He had the dates of their uh, ages wrong. And he said, I should not have given Dr. Sloan that homebrew. You're listening to Country Road Detours. Visit us at countryroaddetours.com.
1: Folks, I'm sitting here right now drinking a cup of Black Bear Blend coffee made by the Knoxville Coffee Company. And joining us right now is Alice Thatcher, the co-founder and owner of the Knoxville Coffee Company.
2: Hey, Bob. Great to be here and thank you for having me on Country Road Detours. All right. Now tell us a little bit
1: about your company.
2: Sure thing. We are a local family-owned business here in Knoxville uh, with a passion for great coffee. We opened our online shop in November of 2018 and have been in business ever since. Share with us about the two
1: types of coffees that you do have, the Knox Heritage Series and the World Reserve Series.
2: So the Knox Heritage Series is a celebration of Knoxville, uh, its rich history and culture and its people. We're native to Knoxville. and proud to call it home, and we're also passionate about great coffee, so we've thought of No better way to celebrate Knoxville than through our passion for coffee. In addition to that, our World Reserve series of coffees offer unique flavor profiles distinct to each region of origin. We want to bring a world of flavor to the Knoxville area. Um, Also, in many cases, we buy direct from the farmers, which supports their communities and the sustainability of coffee.
1: You know there's something about drinking your coffee that has that really nice, smooth flavor.
2: Sort of like
1: ordering coffee in a restaurant
2: well, I appreciate that. We have 19 different roast and blends, uh, all sourced from the best coffee-growing regions in the world. Um, so once we receive the green coffee, we roast it right here in Knoxville, so it's fresh to our customers. That locally roasted freshest makes all the difference. Some of our coffees are slow-roasted at lower temperatures in small batches, which creates a less acidic coffee. Uh, many people, including yourself, like that. Um, in addition, we roast some of our beans at a higher temperature for a shorter amount of time. It all depends on the specific coffee bean and the region it's from uh, and the flavor profile we're trying to achieve. So there's a great many variables we're trying to achieve with our roasted coffee.
1: Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find your coffee? Uh,
2: we are in retail stores. We also have our online shop at www.noxalcoffeeco.com or you can order any of our coffees uh, or give us a call at 865-335-0086. You can order whole bean or ground to your favorite brew method. We are also offering free shipping within the Knoxville area during the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And on top of that, uh, we decided to offer our wholesale bags and pricing to the general public so you can receive a five pound bag of coffee delivered to your doorstep at wholesale cost and free delivery.
1: How about offering our listeners a discount?
2: Sure, just make sure your audience name drops your podcast, Country Road Detours, and we'll give them 10% off. And if they're in the Knoxville area, we'll be happy to deliver it to them for free.
1: So don't forget to go to KnoxvilleCoffeeCo.com. That's KnoxvilleCoffeeCo.com. For more information, check out our website at CountryRoadDetours.com.
0: Tell us about your father what what was he like My dad was a big man. he was two hundred and forty pounds. He had uh worked the oil fields in California before he was a farmer uh He came back and uh, married mom and he was ten years older than mom
1: What do you remember about your mother
0: i I don't really remember I remember her favorite uh, uh admonition was, "Do you want me to get that switch uh, <laughs> after you whatever So but she had birthed uh, uh, the five kids. She was the very quiet uh, individual as a parent because she had finished eighth grade. Dad never went to school, but he learned uh, to cipher they called it, by what uh, my mom taught him. And he really had a lot of uh, ability to do horse trading. He was a smart farmer Mm -hmm. and he always insisted he would never share crop. Excuse the language, he says, I want to raise my own damn tobacco, and I want to do it my way. <laughs> I don't need anybody telling me what to do.
1: Oh, man. That that sounds like a great dad. Uh, tell me what happened. Uh, you, you were the favorite football star in Carthage, Tennessee, and you finally graduated from high school. Where did you go from there?
0: Uh, when I got out of high school, I went to work with the FBI in Washington. While I was there two years, I was, uh, I went into the records and communications uh, which was fingerprinting, etc. cetera. But, uh, and I stayed there two years in Washington. And I went to George Washington University. I got about, um, I think uh, in two years I got maybe 10 credit hours. Then I transferred to San Juan, Puerto Rico. And while I was, and I was there two years with the FBI, and I was a security patrol. That was a time, it was exciting because that was a time Castro was taking over Cuba. And a, yeah. an odd thing about that, my parents were uh, wrote me letters. They were worried sick because Castro was, had the revolution. They were executing people. There I was in Puerto Rico. I wrote back. And I would tell them, you all are 90 miles from Cuba. I'm 385 miles from Cuba (laughs) and Puerto Rico. So don't worry about me. Y'all take care of yourself kind of deal. When I was in Puerto Rico at the Army base Fort Buchanan, uh, they had Florida State credits that you could take. So I went to, I took Spanish and a couple of other things there. So. When I reti- when I resigned from the Bureau, went to David Lipscomb mm-hmm. for a short period of time. I uh, got my uh, degree at MTSU. Mm-hmm. All this time, I was able to work and go to school. Uh, and I had the encouragement of the family. That my sisters would do laundry for me, send me care packages, etc. And uh, I was the only one that wound up being able to... Uh, uh, get a college degree and, and a law degree. And that was, uh, you know, I had some sweat equity in it, but I sure had a lot of family support uh, to help me get there. I came from a military family. It was a family tradition. My dad served in the Army, an uh, uh, older brother in the Navy, an older brother in the Air Force, and I had to be different Joined the Marine Corps. In 1965, my uh, my goal had been to be an officer in the Marine Corps to qualify to become an FBI agent. Well, ironically, neither of those occurred because when I went into when I uh, joined the Marine Corps in 1965, went to Quantico. I'd had two years of ROTC Army uh, while I was in college. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps. In 1965, which was the beginning of the real hard conflict in Vietnam. At that time, I was really gung-ho and fully intended to serve uh, in Vietnam. It was about six months into my uh, basic training. There was a back injury that I'd gotten playing football in high school. That kicked me out. Well, it was aggravated because I had a year of football at MTSU and uh, wound up physically not being able to maintain that. So I wound up getting, as they called it, a medical washout in the Marine Corps. I was at Quantico, so my next move was, well, I don't get to be a Marine uh, officer, but I can still be an FBI agent. So I apply, applied for the FBI, as a special agent they pretty quickly 30 days they came back and said sorry you're not qualified physically because you got a you got an out from the marine corps for a physical disability there was my two dreams of what i wanted to do Mm -hmm. that got bumped so uh my next choice was to come back and finish out uh with my law degree and then that's when i got into the law enforcement area as a a police officer. The 10 years that I spent at the federal, state, and local doing police work, I was single, and those were the better times of my life. I was doing what I loved to do, didn't have any real responsibility until very late in that 10-year period.
1: Well, what would you say was the highlight of your law enforcement career?
0: What stood out uh, more than anything was my timing as a police commissioner and my timing as a police officer in Knoxville was when the administration of Leonard Rogers, Mayor Leonard Rogers, was convinced with work that I was doing that he wanted to politically take a risk, going really open and above board on the drug drive, uh-huh. so out of that came Operation Aquarius, which was roughly a hundred drug dealers, et cetera, that we did uh three levels of uh, drug enforcement, and bottom line on that, it succeeded in driving the drug trafficking underground. So there was a tremendous amount of community support.
1: Well, now let's fast forward a little. So you've made the decision to run for mayor, and you know that you are the underdog because you're running against the popular mayor, Kyle Testerman. Is it true that the legendary Kaz Walker, who is a millionaire, helped you get those votes that you needed to win the election?
0: Very much so, and the way that worked, Kaz's history was pretty much uh, he would be again anybody that was there. He'd be Fort's uh, candidates until they got elected, and then he would be again them. Again them. Again (laughs) them. That's how how he would describe it. Back in the day, in the mid 70s, and on, on up till probably the early 80s, mid 80s, there was something in Knoxville called float wards. And that's where there would be a willing buyer and a willing seller on the votes. And they would be an organized effort. And there would be car trunks with pints of whiskey in it. And there'd be $2 or $3 that would go with it, etc. Bottom line being that the 12 to 14 float wards in the city of Knoxville could determine how close elections turned out. Well. I didn't have money in the campaign. I knew I was going to get killed in the float war. Your
1: opponent had obviously was had a lot of money.
0: Uh, right. Uh, that that was not a it was not an issue with the with my opponent. But uh, <clears throat> what occurred? I I paid a visit to Cas Walker and at his home and Miss Jenny, his wife let me in the front door she recognized me and called me said well randy what what are you doing visiting with us says you're running for mayor aren't you and i said yes ma'am and that's the reason i'm visiting with you Uh, what occurred was that i told mr walker he invited they invited me in i sat down he was sitting in his chair before a stove and I said, I'm, I'm here because I'm going to get hurt bad in the float wards because I don't have any money and I don't have any organization to speak of. He said, well, I've been watching you. And he said, I may be able to help you. He never said I'm going to do anything in particular. And I said, well, can you tell me what you can do? And he said, I can't tell you until I talked to Odell. This was Odell Kaz Lane, who was his nephew. He was the one that did all of the work out in the floating wards. He wouldn't talk any further. He was just clammed up. I gave my expression, an expression of gratitude for him and just whatever you can do to help me. And he said, well, I will tell you this, after I talk to Odell, I'll get back with you. But he said, it's going to be after the election because, he said, if I don't do what I think I can do, you ain't going to get elected. And it was sort of like, I don't have time to fool with you at that point. So I left. The election came in that night. And those float wards I won four of them, I think it was, and I ran close enough in the others, but what he what he had done, he waited on setting the wards up. That's getting your people in, getting, you know, stuff dispersed. He waited until one o'clock in the morning, and at that point, my opponent had gone in and set the wards up. Kaz went in and reset him. He had his own group of people. Uh-huh. Now, that was such a shock that I did that well in the, in those float wards, that it caused a real burnout and was such a shock of me getting into the runoff.
1: They called you were the underdog.
0: Uh, Big-time underdog. Uh-huh.
1: Well, did you ever get to talk to Kaz Walker after the election was over?
0: Yes. It was though he was moving on to other things. Okay. You know, we never had... No need to discuss it. No, it no. You know, He'd he done his thing, and I'm not remembering individual times that yeah. I talked with him, but uh, he was diagnosed at one time with Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, you know, he beat, he beat the rap on that. He went to the
1: nursing home, and then yeah. he got himself out of the nursing home. and Exactly. Started <laughs> doing commercials and having a good time. I did meet him when I worked at Channel 10 WBIR. I heard he was in the lobby, and so I was like, oh, gosh, I've got to meet this guy. You've got to meet him at least once in your lifetime. Sure. So I went in the lobby, and there were David Weft and Kaz Walker sitting on the couch. And I said, Mr. Walker, could I have the pleasure of meeting you? And he got up and, of course, help me, David, help me. <laughs> and David helped him up, and he came over to me, he shook hands. And we just started talking, and I was just amazed at how kind and friendly he was, you know? And he was sharp-minded, everything. So uh, that was just a, maybe a couple of years before he died.
0: Well, he was ninety-six when he passed away. Mm-hmm. I went to the went to the funeral service and uh Preacher paul Mull spoke. Uh did a wonderful job uh with the obituary, et cetera. But uh Preacher Mull told a story uh about Kaz on his ninety-third birthday party that he had, Preacher Mull said, There's this big crowd there and said, We asked Kaz if he'd uh, make a little speech, and said, Kaz said, I don't want to make no speeches, but he said, I'll tell you one thing. I don't have any uh, political enemy of mine because I've outlived every damn one of them.
1: (laughs) From the red earth of Mexico, it's coming. From China, a piece of the Great War, it's it's coming. every corner of the earth it's coming and it's coming
0: soon you've got to be there
1: point me in the right direction i'll be there
0: mayor tyree of course uh, everybody i guess the world over is talking about the world's fair that is coming to knoxville well, we're excited about that fact, and uh, the last week we signed up our 21st, 21st uh, nation that will be participating.
1: Well, this scruffy little city got to host a World's Fair in 1982. How did that become?
0: In 1974, uh-huh. the idea from downtown Knoxville Association uh, they, uh, Their executive director had been to Spokane and Seattle, uh-huh. came back here and in 1974, met with Mayor Testerman and said, Let, we ought to do a World's Fair. Uh, shortly after that, uh, Mayor Testerman appointed Jim Haslam and Jake Butcher okay. as uh, co-chairs to do a feasibility study. We did a feasibility study and never look back because that was the beginning of the process. We had the luck of the draw. Believe it or not, we went through three presidents, two governors, two senators, in a seven year period that made the World's Fair become a reality. Okay. When I took office in seventy five, uh it was not a World's Fair, it was a Another event, yeah. another category. Uh, with well, you were going through your first term. The World's
1: Fair hasn't happened yet. What was happening in your second term with the World's Fair in 1982? Okay, my
0: second term started in um, in 1979 and ran through 1983. Mm-hmm. The World's Fair was 1982. Yeah. What had to happen in uh, in in the second term was we had to sign up uh, countries, exhibitors, etc. That was That was the time that President Carter had such profound influence uh, on uh, uh, helping us out in terms of getting commitments made on an international basis. Senator Howard Baker was instrumental. Uh, we had, Senator Jim Sasser, again, Sasser was a Democrat, Baker was a Republican. We didn't ask who, uh, you know, whether those exhibitors were Democrat or Republican. We just wanted them to come here Mm -hmm. and be a part of the fair. A defining moment was 1980 because at that point we still had people wanting to have a referendum vote on whether or not we were having a world's fair. As it turned out, that's when the Wall Street Journal and famously said, Knoxville, a scruffy little river city thinks they're going to do a world's fair, ticked us off to, you know, beyond glory. Because at that point, that one thing that was, uh, you're talking about pouring gasoline on the fire, yeah, yeah. that did it. That got you. Knoxville has its Sun Sphere. It's a 26-story tower with a five-story restaurant complex on the top of it. Uh, two floors for observation, two floors for the restaurant, and uh, one for the kitchen area. Now I have heard that there's going to be gold dust in the glass. That's, that's true. That sounds expensive, but it's an experimental thing. They have one other building in the United States like that, but uh, it will be 24-karat gold dust in the glass. Uh, to give them more brilliance when the sun hits it.
1: How did the Sun Sphere idea come into the picture?
0: Energy was our theme, Mm -hmm. uh, which at that time was ideal. Mm -hmm. And what made it even more ideal was here we were, TVA headquartered here, uh, Oak Ridge National Lab, you know, rock throwaway, uh, University of Tennessee research. Uh, We were ready-made for a World's Fair with an energy theme. Mm-hmm. All Americans can be proud of this World's Fair that we open today.
1: Eighty-seven thousand folks came to see President Reagan arrive to open the fair. You were there on the podium as well.
0: What was that like? Uh, they were here for opening day on May first, nineteen eighty-two. He was one of the three presidents that had been supportive of the fair. I was on the podium, so I got to uh, uh, meet he and Ms. Reagan. He, when he pulled into behind the podium area, there were two Secret Service guys in the truck with machine guns. Whoa. So, you know, I don't know whether that had a threat or what, but uh, there was, uh, of course, after the assassination attempt on President Reagan, they always doubled down. We were there first, you know, it was mm-hmm. the uh, local folks, uh-huh. the state folks, and the federal dignitaries that were all on the uh, stage. Yeah. And he and Ms. Reagan came up, and then after he made his presentation, as he was leaving, was when uh, I was in, in the line and shook hands with him. Now, did you not have an opportunity to, to meet him as well? Well, uh, there was
1: a crowd at Market Square. I was determined to shake hands with the president. I was working at TVA, so I made my way. I kind of pushed my way through. Finally got to where there was an opening where all of the dignitaries were coming through. I think you were there too. but. Uh, but as I got there, I shook hands with Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan had a big hand. I remember that. And uh, Lamar Alexander and Howard Baker. And I thought, okay, I fulfilled my dreams <laughs> of meeting, actually meeting a president. But, uh, that Is was that ready.
0: the only president that you ever uh, met? the only president. Huh. Unless you're thinking about running one day. No, I think that's probably bypassed me as an opportunity. <laughs> it's never too late. You can make the world a better place. Uh, we're going to improve it substantially in, uh, in November anyway. So. There you go. There you go. Get out and vote, folks. Vote uh, early and vote often.
1: Well, we've come to the end here, and uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I do have one last question. What advice would you give someone that is considering politics as a career?
0: In my opinion, there are three places that you can succeed best in uh, providing service. The first one is family. Uh, <clears throat> the second one is neighborhood or community. The third one is the country and you know those three areas of, of service uh, we all participate in that in some form or another there is no more honorable service that you can provide to the fellow man and fellow woman than uh, public service we have to continue to work it's sort of like ben franklin said we've got a republic but can we keep it? We have been mightily challenged over the years. Mm-hmm. Everything from wars, the Civil War, the International Wars, World War I, to. but we've always maintained a, an ability to win them, ultimately. And for the right thing to... I don't know how any other country can do or say anything of a critical nature about us because we're such a godsend to every other country in the world in terms of how we go about not only preserving freedom, but by taking care of those who are not able to take care of themselves. Thanks for stopping by Country Road Detours.